Human Nature and Conduct An Introduction to Social Psychology, Part 4, by John Dewey, published in 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Part 4, Section 3, What is Freedom? The place of natural fact and law in morals brings us to the problem of freedom. We are told that seriously to import empirical facts into morals is equivalent to an abrogation of freedom. Facts and laws mean necessity, we are told. The way to freedom is to turn our back upon them and take flight to a separate ideal realm. Even if the flight could be successfully accomplished, the efficacy of the prescription may be doubted, for we need freedom in and among actual events, not apart from them. It is to be hoped, therefore, that there remains an alternative, that the road to freedom may be found in that knowledge of facts which enables us to employ them in connection with desires and aims. A physician or engineer is free in his thought and his action in the degree in which he knows what he deals with. Possibly we find here the key to any freedom. What men have esteemed and fought for in the name of liberty is varied and complex, but certainly it has never been a metaphysical freedom of will. It seems to contain three elements of importance, though on their face not all of them are directly compatible with one another. One, it includes efficiency in action, ability to carry out plans, the absence of cramping and thwarting obstacles. Two, it also includes capacity to vary plans, to change the course of action, to experience novelties. And, again, three, it signifies the power of desire and choice to be factors in events. Few men would purchase even a high amount of efficient action along definite lines at the price of monotony, or if success and action were brought by all abandonment of personal preference. They would probably feel that a more precious freedom was possessed in a life of ill-assured objective achievement that contained undertaking of risks, adventuring in new fields, a pitting of personal choice against the odds of events, and a mixture of success and failures, provided choice had a career. The slave is a man who executes the wish of others, when doomed to act along lines predetermined to regularity. Those who have defined freedom as ability to act have unconsciously assumed this ability is exercised in accord with desire, and that its operation introduces the agent into fields previously unexplored. Hence the conception of freedom as involving three factors. Yet efficiency in execution cannot be ignored. To say that a man is free to choose to walk, while the only walk he can take will lead him over a precipice, is to strain words as well as facts. Intelligence is the key to freedom in act. 
we are likely to be able to go ahead prosperously in the degree in which we have consulted conditions and formed a plan which enlists their consenting cooperation. The gratuitous help of unforeseen circumstance we cannot afford to despise. Luck, bad if not good, will always be with us, but it has a way of favoring the intelligent and showing its back to the stupid. And the gifts of fortune, when they come, are fleeting, except when they are made taut by intelligent adaptation of conditions. In neutral and adverse circumstances, a study and foresight are the only roads to unimpeded action. Insistence upon a metaphysical freedom of will is generally at its most strident pitch with those who despise knowledge of matters of fact. They pay for their contempt by halting and confined action. Glorification of freedom in general, at the expense of positive abilities in particular, has often characterized the official creed of historic liberalism. Its outward sign is the separation of politics and law from economics. Much of what is called the individualism of the early 19th century has in truth little to do with the nature of individuals. It goes back to metaphysics, which held that harmony between man and nature can be taken for granted if once certain artificial restrictions upon man are removed. Hence it neglected the necessity of steadying and regulating industrial conditions so that a nominal freedom can be made in actuality. Find a man who believes that all men need is freedom from oppressive legal and political measures, and you have found a man who, unless he is merely obstinately maintaining his own private privileges, carries at the back of his head some heritage of the metaphysical doctrine of free will, plus an optimistic confidence in natural harmony. He needs a philosophy that recognizes the objective character of freedom and its dependence upon a congruity of environment with human wants, an agreement which can be obtained only by profound thought and unremitting application. For freedom as a fact depends upon conditions of work which are socially and scientifically buttressed. Since industry covers the most pervasive relations of man with his environment, freedom is unreal, which does not have as its basis an economic command of environment. I have no desire to add another to the cheap and easy solutions which exist of the seeming conflict between freedom and organization. It is reasonably obvious that organization may become a hindrance to freedom. It does not take us far to say that the trouble lies not in organization, but in over-organization. At the same time, it must be admitted that there is no effective or objective freedom without organization. It is easy to criticize the contract theory of the state, which states that individuals surrender some, at least, of their natural liberties in order to make secure as civil liberties what they retain. Nevertheless, there is some truth in the idea of surrender and exchange. A certain natural freedom is possessed by man. 
that is to say, in some respects harmony exists between a man's energies and his surrounding, such that the latter support and execute his purposes, in so far as he is free, without such a basic natural support, conscious contrivances of legislation, administration, and deliberate human institution of social arrangements cannot take place. In this sense, natural freedom is prior to political freedom and its condition. But we cannot trust wholly to a freedom thus procured. It is at the mercy of accident. Conscious agreements among men must supplement and in some degree supplant freedom of action, which is the gift of nature. In order to arrive at these agreements, individuals have to make concessions. They must consent to curtailment of some natural liberties, in order that any of them may be rendered secure and enduring. They must, in short, enter into an organization with other human beings, so that the activities of others may be permanently counted upon to assure regularity of action and far-reaching scope of plans and courses of action. The procedure is not, in so far, unlike surrendering a portion of one's income in order to buy insurance against future contingencies, and thus to render the future course of life more equably secure. It would be folly to maintain that there is no sacrifice. We can, however, contend that the sacrifice is a reasonable one, justified by results. Viewed in this light, the relation of individual freedom to organization is seen to be an experimental affair. It is not capable of being settled by abstract theory. Take the question of labor unions and the closed or open shop. It is folly to fancy that no restrictions and surrenders of prior freedoms and possibilities of future freedoms are involved in the extension of this particular form of organization. But to condemn such organization on the theoretical ground that a restriction of liberty is entailed is to adopt a position which would have been fatal to every advanced step in civilization and to every net gain in effective freedom. Every such question is to be judged not on the basis of antecedent theory, but on the basis of concrete consequences. The question is to the balance of freedom and security achieved as compared with practicable alternatives. Even the question of the point where membership in an organization ceases to be a voluntary matter and becomes coercive or required is also an experimental matter, a thing to be decided by scientifically conducted study of consequences, of pros and cons. It is definitely an affair of specific detail, not of wholesale theory. It is equally amusing to see one man denouncing on the grounds of pure theory the coercion of workers by a labor union while he avails himself of the increased power due to corporate action in business and praises the coercion of the political state, and to see another man denouncing the latter as pure tyranny while lauding the power of industrial labor organizations. The position of one or the other may be justified in particular cases, 
but justification is due to results in practice, not to general theory. Organization tends, however, to become rigid and to limit freedom. In addition to security and energy in action, novelty, risk, change are the ingredients of the freedom which men desire. Variety is more than a spice of life. It is largely of its essence, making a difference between the free and the enslaved. Invariant virtue appears to be as mechanical as uninterrupted vice, for true excellence changes with conditions. Unless character rises to overcome some new difficulty or conquer some temptation from an unexpected quarter, we suspect its gain is only a veneer. Choice is an element in freedom, and there can be no choice without unrealized and precarious possibilities. It is this demand for genuine contingency which is caricatured in the orthodox doctrine of a freedom of indifference, a power to choose this way or that, apart from any habit or impulse, without even a desire on the part of will to show off. Such an indetermination of choice is not desired by the lover of either reason or excitement. The theory of arbitrary free choice represents indeterminateness of conditions grasped in a vague and lazy fashion and hardened into a desirable attribute of will. Under the title of freedom, men prize such uncertainty of conditions as give deliberation and choice an opportunity. But uncertainty of volition, which is more than a reflection of uncertainty of conditions, is the mark of a person who has acquired imbecility of character through permanent weakening of his springs of action. Whether or not indeterminateness, uncertainty, actually exists in the world is a difficult question. It is easier to think of the world as fixed, settled once for all, and man as accumulating all the uncertainty there is in his will and all the doubt there is in his intellect. The rise of natural science has facilitated this dualistic partitioning, making nature wholly fixed and mind wholly open and empty. Fortunately for us, we do not have to settle the question. A hypothetical answer is enough. If the world is already done and done for, if its character is entirely achieved so that its behavior is like that of a man lost in routine, then the only freedom for which man can hope is one of efficiency in overt action. But if change is genuine, if accounts are still in process of making, and if objective uncertainty is the stimulus to reflection, then variation in action, novelty, and experiment have a true meaning. In any case, the question is an objective one. It concerns not man in isolation from the world, but man in his connection with it. A world that is at points and times indeterminate enough to call out deliberation and to give play to choice to shape its future is a world in which will is free, not because it is inherently vacillating and unstable, but because deliberation and choice are determining and stabilizing factors. Upon an empirical view, uncertainty, doubt, 
hesitation contingency and novelty genuine change which is not mere disguised repetition are facts only deductive reasoning from certain fixed premises creates a bias in favor of complete determination and finality to say that these things exist only in human experience not in the world and exist there only because of our finitude is dangerously like paying ourselves with words empirically the life of man seems in these respects as in others to express a culmination of facts in nature to admit ignorance and uncertainty in man while denying them to nature involves a curious dualism variability initiative innovation departure from routine experimentation are empirically the manifestation of a genuine nisus in things at all events it is these things that are precious to us under the name of freedom it is their elimination from the life of a slave which makes his life servile intolerable to the freeman who has once been on his own no matter what his animal comfort and security a free man would rather take his chance in an open world than be guaranteed in a closed world these considerations give point to the third factor in love of freedom the desire to have desire count as a factor a force even if will chooses unaccountably even if it be capriciously impulse it does not follow that there are real alternatives genuine possibilities open in the future what we want is possibilities open in the world not in the will except as will or deliberate activity reflects the will to foresee future objective alternatives and to be able by deliberation to choose one of them and thereby weight its chances in the struggle for future existence measures our freedom it is assumed sometimes that if it can be shown that deliberation determines choice and deliberation is determined by character and conditions there is no freedom this is like saying that because a flower comes from root and stem it cannot bear fruit the question is not what are the antecedents of deliberation and choice but what are their consequences what do they do that is distinctive the answer is that they give us all the control of future possibilities which is open to us and this control is the crux of our freedom without it we are pushed from behind with it we walk in the light the doctrine that knowledge intelligence rather than will constitutes freedom is not new it has been preached by moralists of many a school all rationalists have identified freedom with action emancipated by insight into truth but insight into necessity has by them been substituted for foresight of possibilities tolstoy for example expressed the idea of spinoza and hegel when he said the ox is a slave as long as he refuses to recognize the yoke and chafes under it while if he identifies himself with this necessity and draws willingly instead of rebelliously he is free 
but as long as the yoke is a yoke, it is impossible that voluntary identification with it should occur. Conscious submission is an either fatalistic submissiveness or cowardice. The ox accepts in fact not the yoke, but the stall and the hay to which the yoke is a necessary incident. But if the ox foresees the consequences of the use of the yoke, if he anticipates the possibility of harvest, and identifies himself not with the yoke, but with the realizations of its possibilities, he acts freely, voluntarily. He hasn't accepted a necessity as unavoidable. He has welcomed a possibility as a desirability. Perception of necessary law plays, indeed, a part but no amount of insight into necessity brings with it, as such, anything but a consciousness of necessity. Freedom is the truth of necessity only when we use one necessity to alter another. When we use the law to foresee consequences and to consider how they may be averted or secured, then freedom begins employing knowledge of law to enforce desire in execution gives power to the engineer employing knowledge of law in order to submit to it without further action constitutes fatalism no matter how it is dressed up thus we recur to our main contention morality depends upon events not upon commands and ideals alien to nature but intelligence treats events as moving, as fraught with possibilities, not as ended or final. In forecasting their possibilities, the distinction between better and worse arises. Human desire and ability cooperates with this, or that natural force according as this or that eventuality is judged better. We do not use the present to control the future. We use the foresight of the future to refine and expand present activity. In this use of desire, deliberation and choice, freedom is actualized. End of Part 4, Section 3, What is Freedom?